Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. At Amica Insurance... We know it's more than a life policy. It's about the promise and the responsibility that comes with being a new parent. Being there day and night. And building a plan for tomorrow, today. For the ones you'll always look out for, trust Amica Life Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. Defensively, I, I thought we were outstanding, consistent, you know, in all five games. I mean, they, they are definitely the the straw that's stirring this drink. I mean, they're, 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 they're you know, uh, we felt strongly come out of last year about our, our group and, you know, had a great offseason and everything leading up to this. But, uh, boy, they're just playing lights out. You know, we expected, a, you know, a heavy run game uh, coming from the Rams. and But when we had our opportunity to pressure, um, I thought our guys were – Outstanding. Obviously, the three takeaways were, were huge and a big part of our victory. Mike McCarthy doing everything he can to prevent Sean Payton from coming to Dallas and the way things are going for the Cowboys. Payton will not be in the conversation. Payton will be in place somewhere, but his place will not be in Dallas. They are now 4-1. and one. That defense is getting it done. And it gives them the luxury miles of waiting as long as possible for Dak Prescott to be fully healed. The worst thing they could do is let him come back before he's ready. We saw that with Russell Wilson last year. He was back before his finger was healed. He willed his way back to the field. Geno Smith was playing pretty well. That was an extra little impetus for Russell Wilson to come back. And he just he wasn't as good as he needed to be when he did return. They want Dak to be truly 100%. I say this all the time. I'm saying it again. When you have an injured quarterback, the question is how far below 100% are you willing to tolerate for that guy versus a backup who's 100%. And when your team is playing the way that it is, stick with the 100% Cooper Rush until Dak Prescott is truly 100%. There's no controversy. There's no revolving door. There's no chance that Prescott is going to be thrown overboard or forced into retirement or a trade like like Tony Romo right. six years ago when it was obvious right. that he was out and Dak was in. Just wait. Let him get healthy. And it yeah. looks like it's probably going to run another week, and why not? Look at that defense. Look at what they did to the L.A. Rams, defending champions. I know the Rams are down right now, but to throttle them the way they did. In one of those games where if the Rams are ever going to wake up, it's got to be after that embarrassment against the 49ers. They just couldn't do anything. Matthew Stafford had no time to operate. It doesn't matter who his receivers are. They were all over him, and it left the Rams really searching for answers. Miles at 2-3, and three, just like the Bengals, but a very different 2-3 and three than the Bengals because the Bengals could have won each of their games. The three games the Rams lost, they had no chance of winning.
the Rams offensive line is absolutely in shambles. And in those clips we were just showing right there, you can see all the interior pressure that is coming at Matthew Stafford. And it's because they just don't have the line play right now. They have so many injuries that they're dealing with. They're playing like basically third, if not fourth folks that they probably would on that line in the interior between guard and guard, right? And it includes the center too. So that's really what the problem is. I mean, if you go back to the Rams in 17 and 18, and then kind of last year in 2021 as well, the beginning of Sean McVay's tenure, there was just absolute continuity on the offensive line. They didn't have to deal with pretty much any injuries. In 2019, the injuries started to pop up a little bit, and that's part of why things didn't go as well with Jared Goff. They missed the playoffs for the only time in Sean McVay's tenure. Things got better in 20 and 21, but now we're seeing those effects of look, you don't have the same guys on your offensive line. And that combined with the lack of skill players that are real threats that the Rams have right now, I mean, that's why you're seeing what you're seeing. This offense is not explosive. It's not able to do anything. And when you allow a scoop and score on your first drive on the third play from scrimmage, it really kind of tells you what kind of day you're about to have. And that's just the way it ended up for the Rams. It was just ugly, ugly, ugly up front all day. You know, they did come back and take a 10-9 leave on a, on a long touchdown by Cooper Cup, but it just it felt temporary at the time, and it was temporary. They it can't was. sustain it. The offense is going to have moments, but they cannot have the kind of sustained success that we saw last year that they've grown very accustomed to. And they haven't had such a dramatic overhaul of the team that this should have been expected, but they've lost just enough that that they've lost their balance. They don't have the running game. And if you don't have the running game, the passing game is harder to operate. They miss Robert Woods and or Odo Beckham Jr. But as Coach Dungey pointed out last night, they wouldn't even matter on a day like yesterday because if no. Stafford doesn't have time to throw, you, you could have Crazy Legs Hirsch out there and it wouldn't matter. You could have Isaac Bruce and Torrey Holt and the rest of the greatest show on go. turf out there and it's not going to matter, right? It's just not yes. going to matter at that point for the Rams. So... They, they let's hear a little bit from from Sean McVay on the team's offensive struggles, because even though there's a long way to go, there really isn't much they can do to right. make chicken salad out of the chicken stuff that we've seen the past few weeks. Here he is. We've got to be able to run the football efficiently. And then when we do not run the football efficiently, we're having trouble protecting and being able to hold up. And then you can't give yourself a chance to let things develop. And so, um, you know, I love Matthew Stafford. He is competing and doing everything in his power for this team. He needs some help. And we got, we got to be able to help him. There were a lot more comments made by Sean McVay yesterday. We posted something last night with his his remarks. And, and at one point, it was weird. He, he 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 kind of wants to start calling people out, but he won't. Yeah. It's the one time he won't use anyone's name, frankly. But, like, he was kind of indirectly saying, we know who's stepping up and getting it done. We know who those yes. guys are. And the implication is nobody else is. It's Stafford and it's Cup, and everybody else is letting us down. That's basically his message on offense. Defense, defense is fine. Right. The defense would be good enough to win games if the offense wasn't being completely shut down. 19 points in two games played six days apart. Total right. of 19 right. points. Are you kidding me? And there's really nothing they can do. 
We know that they have that F them picks mentality, but who's out there? I've made that point last night. Like they need to make a trade for the equivalent of the Vaughn Miller on the offensive line. That guy's never available to be traded. There is no offensive lineman that is just waiting to be handed to a team where he's going to come make the difference. Oh, and by the way, offensive line play a little more difficult than defensive line play because you're working in concert with everyone else. And when your offensive line is bad, side to side, left tackle to right tackle and all points in between, if you get one really great player, well, they'll just avoid him and they'll attack the other weaknesses. That's the thing. A good offensive line, a quality offensive line, a competent offensive line has to be good all the way across because they'll find the hole and they'll exploit it wherever it may be, Miles. It's got to be greater than the sum of its parts, right? It, it, it always is like that. And you always have to work in concert with one another. And that's what I'm saying, though. You have guys that the Rams would normally be playing in a preseason game out there against the Cowboys in week five. That's why it's not working. The Rams don't play anybody of consequence in a preseason game. And they're going out there with like the third center. You got the third guard, the fourth guard, the guard leaves in the game. And then you got to put in another one. That's why it's not working. But even so, you also have to have the skill players actually do something. Where is Allen Robinson? Has anybody seen him? Can we get his face on a milk carton? What's going on there? Why isn't this working? We've seen Allen Robinson. We know he is a talented receiver. Why is it that he's got three catches for 12 yards? And he's catching a one-yard pass on a five-yard pass? And they don't go back to him at all. I don't understand why it's not working between him and Matthew Stafford. And obviously the offensive line not giving Matthew Stafford time has a lot to do with it. But my goodness gracious, you need something out of that guy. I know Van Jefferson, they're missing him too. But Allen Robinson was signed to do something. He ain't doing nothing. Well, and the belief was Allen Robinson has done pretty well over the course of his career with a bunch of bad quarterbacks. You finally pair him up with a good quarterback and he's going to explode whether it's the offensive line, whether it's just taking time for him to get properly integrated into the system and get comfortable or whatever the case may be, it's just not working. And there's a possibility he's beyond the point of his own personal expiration date, that it's just over. There's always a chance that's going to happen too because he has been around the game for a while now, dating back to the Jaguars. I think he came in the same year as Blake Bortles, I think, 2013-ish. He had some good years. He had some good years. Very good years, and uh, it's just not happening right now. Here's the other issue with the Rams, and this is a point that Sims and I have made in the past as the Rams were not only giving up picks to get current established players, but paying those players market value contracts. The risk you take is if you do have a rash of injuries, you're relying upon players that are much cheaper than those you would ordinarily be getting to be your backups. You don't have a Mm -hmm. robust middle class of second stringers like the Patriots prided themselves on having back in the days when Tom Brady wasn't getting market value, and they'd leverage that to every other player. Well, who do you think you are, Tom Brady? He's not insisting on market value. So you're able to have these backups that were very good because you were paying them. They were happy to come be second string because they were getting paid well, and they, they didn't have to go out and you know, be banged up all the time. They're getting good money to wait. And when it was time to play, they were able to play well. Rams don't have that. Rams need to be able to coach up players who were either undrafted or taken late in the draft, get them ready to go, get them ready to play when they need to. And especially on the offensive line, it's not working. That's the risk you take when you've got Aaron Donald and you're paying him ridiculous money. Jalen Ramsey, 
Bobby Wagner, who got a, a very good contract. Cooper Cup's contract. Matthew Stafford's contract. They got a lot of highly paid players on that team, and that puts more pressure on making sure that your lower paid players can get it done when you need them to. Absolutely, it does. It been for the most part, though, the Rams have been able to do that, right? We are still talking about the defending Super Bowl champions here, and it certainly doesn't look like the Rams are going to be able to be the first repeat winner in almost twenty years. But at the same time, they've been able to do it in the past. It's just that right now, with the way this team is constructed, it is just not working. And it's funny because the NFC West right now is completely up for grabs. I don't know what the best team is in the NFC West because all of those teams have some real significant flaws, but there is still a chance that the Rams can win this division. They've just somehow got to figure out a way to shore up the pass protection because if they can't do that and if they can't run the ball, then there's no way in the world this team, even if it gets to the postseason, is going to win a postseason game. I mean, look at this. I mean, you guys, I mean, dude, you might as well just, just open the gate there and let the guy basically right through the middle of the offensive line. It's just, you can't function as an offense when that is the case. You can't do it. It will not work. Rob Havenstein's been there a real long time. He's a good right tackle. They just gave him an extension. Got Joe Noteboom on the other side. He's trained behind Andrew Whitworth. He did a nice job last year in the postseason. Like, look, Andrew Whitworth ain't walking through that door, all right? You know, John Sullivan ain't walking through that door to play center. Not getting Orlando Pace back to come in and play offensive wide, all right? Like, you've got to figure it out somehow in order to stay competitive, if, especially if you want to sign Odell Beckham Jr. for the back half of the season. I wouldn't sign with them if I were him. I would not return to the Rams. Why would you? When you can know. sit and wait and jump you- on board a, a content like you did last year, you pick the horse that you think is going to win the race. If you have the luxury of waiting until November, the middle of November, to pick your team, why would you pick the Rams instead of another team that seems to be far better equipped. I'd take the Cowboys over the Rams right now. Dak comes back. There was that question, is C.D. Lamb ready to be the number one receiver? And I know Michael Gallup's healthy, but I'd I'd be more comfortable if I'm OBJ playing for the Cowboys right now than the Rams because oh. the Cowboys are going places. The Rams, are, you know, and they look, I don't want to write them off after five games, but the thing is, how are they going to get better? Like you said, Guys aren't walking through the door. They're not going to wake up one day and have a better offensive line. Their only hope is the guys they have will get better through repetition and practice and effort and trying and working, and maybe they can find a way to improve. Whether they or not should Matthew get some Stafford, guys back, though. Well, they they and, should get some guys not, back. Like, at center, Brian Allen, he, he should be back sooner than later. But, that again, that's, that, that's only one part of the issue. That's right. And, look – Matthew Stafford may be in multiple parts by the time it's all said and done. You saw him on the ground yesterday, and he, he prides himself very quietly. And he's, he's, you know, he doesn't, he's not like Ben Roethlisberger where he exaggerates his injuries and talks about yeah. them and walks around with an ice pack on every joint on his body like the Stay Puff Marshmallow Man. He just gets up and kind of does the John Wayne stride to the sideline, never complains, never never talks about and I I said last week he's probably got five or six injuries the team doesn't even know about that he's just dealing with that he's not even getting treatment for them that he's just gritting it out and gutting it out because that's how he is and whatever number of injuries he had going into yesterday's game he's got more today you could see he was banged up 
and uh, they, they've just they've they've always been very reticent to be candid about Matthew Stafford's health because he's very reticent to be candid about his health, but he always finds a way to just keep going. So NFC East gets the win, NFC West gets the loss, and that dynamic also continued between the Cardinals and the Eagles. Jalen Hurts was right last week when at his midweek press conference, nobody asked him a single question about the Cardinals. He essentially asked himself a question just so he could say, we have to take the Cardinals seriously. And, you know, my only concern with the Eagles right now, they get a lead and their foot slides off the gas pedal. They did Mm -hmm. it against the Lions. They kind of did it against the Jaguars, even though they're down 14, nothing. They're in the process of, of, pulling away and the Jaguars made it interesting late and yesterday the Cardinals made it interesting late but the Eagles still finding a way to win and yesterday was the perfect opportunity to step in a pothole if you're the Eagles it was the perfect trap game with the Cowboys looming to hold on and win that game says a lot about the focus the resilience and just kind of like the shine you know, the team of destiny or density. If there is a team like that in the NFC this year, so far it's the Eagles, Miles, because they just keep finding a way to win. They do. And look, I mean, you also got to uh, give Steve Keim the gold star for this week if you're the Philadelphia Eagles for going out and getting Matt Amendola, who did not look good in his game uh, against the Colts for the Chiefs. That's why he got whacked there. And then they go out and they sign him because Matt Prater's hurt. And, oh, by the way, yeah, he misses a field goal at the end of the game. So, thank you, Steve Kime, if you are the Philadelphia Eagles. But, yeah, I, I love the way the Eagles have been playing. And, I, yeah, as we showed here, this final sequence that the Cardinals had. First of all, not a good job by Kyler Murray of knowing where the sticks are and knowing where you need to be on the field. Because when you slide that early and then you uh, basically have to spike the ball – I mean, first of all, you're sliding too early to prevent yourself from getting the first down. Second of all, you spike the ball too early on the clock and leave some time where if it just so happened that they were able to make the field goal, the Eagles would have had some time to get down the field and, and then win the game. So just not a good operational uh, standpoint or operational execution, if you will, from uh, the Cardinals there late in that game. Yeah, and I... I... <laughs> Yeah, the poor Cardinals, they they did have a chance to steal it in the Amendola miss. And I'm looking at the post from MDS last night. We have five uncensored F-bombs in that post where Justin Pugh is defending Matt Amendola, saying it's not on one bleeping guy. Everyone's waiting around on one bleeping guy to come back here and talk. This bleeping ain't right. It's not right. It's not on one bleeping guy. That's what Justin Pugh said as a scrum was gathered to to grill Matt like Amendola that. nice. on his ugly, awful miss. And then the final F-bomb, if you're keeping score, Pugh said to Amendola, keep your effing head up. So Justin Pugh, being a good teammate for a guy who just came through the door and will probably be exiting through the door very quickly. I, it just was a comical, cartoonish miss. It wasn't a doink. It wasn't even close. Again, it was like he deliberately aimed it to go 20 yards to the side of where it was supposed to go. It was the anti-Justin Tucker. And there, I, I always say there are plenty of guys out there that can kick reliably and accurately that you just go find another one. Maybe there aren't enough guys. Maybe the shortage, maybe the supply doesn't meet the demand of kickers who can reliably get it done. You've got a few, a select few that are really good. 
Then you got a bunch of guys that are okay. Then you got the ones who, you know, just can't make kicks, but they keep getting chances because there's no one else. Yeah, it's true. And especially with there, it just seems like there's been a lot of injured kickers this year. There's another kicker injury uh, yesterday for the 49ers. Robbie Gold will have to see where that one goes this week. And it's kind of weird for them because they're staying on the East Coast as they played Carolina last week and they'll play another East Coast game this week. So we'll see what happens there. But yeah, it's it's not great unless you're Justin Tucker. I mean, even kickers drafted in the fourth round are missing two field goals in their games yesterday. I would have won you the game for Cleveland. I haven't seen what we're we talking about that coming up. I haven't seen where the 49ers are staying this week. They've stayed at the Greenbrier just down the road from me here in West Virginia in the past. I can go down and hang out with Kyle. Oh, yeah. I'm sure he'd like that. I'm sure he I like would. Kyle. I like Kyle. I don't think Kyle likes me, but I'm too old to give a shit about a lot of things. But <laughs> I wonder if they're staying down at the Greenbrier. Saying that word I on television? They They've stayed at Youngstown in the past where the DeBartolo's are from the family that's owned the team for years. Uh, I wonder where they're staying. I guess I should look that up. I, guess, I feel like I should already know that. Maybe they are at the Green Bar. Maybe I'll, I'll jump in the car and drive down to hang out with Kyle tonight or not. No. Uh, let's go ahead and take a break. We'll hand out some Week 5 superlatives or otherwise when this Monday edition of PFG Live, presented by Google Pixel, continues right after this. What the- Around any corner... Within every battle, and with the dawn of each new day, the threat of the unexpected, the unpredictable, and the unrelenting lies in wait. But Marines will always be there. They are the constant in the chaos. No matter the battlefield, Marines adapt to win, defeating every shifting threat, protecting our nation's future. The few, the proud, the Marines. Yards more than Alvin Kamara. Can you add running back to your resume now too? Is this surreal? No, I don't know. Look, I, I just work here and and uh, and and do what they ask. Taysom Hill. Good lord, what a game from him yesterday. Three rushing yeah. touchdowns, a passing touchdown, and there's been this question of what his role really is, what he's gonna do. Just do it. Have him do what he did yesterday on a regular basis, and the Saints will win more football games. Great output yesterday to beat the Seattle Seahawks. Superlatives time for week five. We hand out awards. Some of them are truly positive. Some of them are a way to backhand a team that deserves to be. Let's start with Miles. What do you have for me? I think all of mine are uh, actually ways to backhand a team and or a player and or a coach. But we'll start uh, with the aforementioned game that we're talking about at the end of the last segment, Brandon Staley's Chargers versus the Browns. And I don't know what Brandon Staley was doing, but I do know that he was lucky to escape because when you go for it on fourth and one in your own territory, when the Browns don't have any timeouts, yes, you're trying to end the game, but if you don't get it, you're basically saying, here, Browns, 
Here's a really big opportunity where all you've got to do is complete one 10 yard pass and you are in the range of a very makeable field goal for a kicker that was drafted in the first round and hit a 57, 58 yard field goal in week one to end the game. So before I eviscerate him even more, let's hear from Brandon Staley on his thought process in kicking or excuse me, in making and going for it on fourth down. Fourth down just really felt like, you know, the slant of Mike was going to be uh, the play call there. And, um, you know, just didn't go down for us. But uh, I had a lot of confidence uh, in our defense to go out there and get him stopped. And that was a big motive um, because we knew that they would have to throw the ball to beat us. Uh, and we felt like we could cover him, you know. And I love the way that our team finished that game uh, because obviously the storybook would have been just to finish it right there. All right. And to walk to victory lane. But that's not how it went. You didn't cover them. You didn't do it. They didn't do any of that. They should have lost the game. And I was going back and forth with uh, former Raiders exec Amy Trask on this last night. She said that she would have been, had to be restrained from firing him before he got on the plane. That was a boneheaded decision. And I get why you want to end the game on your own terms. But if you're facing a backup quarterback and you got 110 and they have no timeouts, make them drive the length of the field. Conventional wisdom makes sense sometimes. And that's when it really would have. Well, and this gets back to what we were talking about earlier, that I wonder at what point someone is going to just take a knee after they tie a game up with two minutes left in regulation, thinking that they have a better chance of winning in overtime than trying to defend the team that will be in four-down territory all the way down until they kick the game-winning field goal and walk off. But this whole thing of it's 53% chance likely you'll win. If you go for it, it's 52% if you punt. Very few coaches in the history of the sport, other than maybe George Hallis, who owned the team, have the luxury of hanging around long enough for all those numbers to come to fruition. You don't have a thousand games where, hey, if we do it a thousand times, we're going to be right a few more times than we aren't. You have to know in that moment what the right thing to do is. And he got lucky because the rookie kicker missed the field goal that would have delivered a victory and maybe they would have fired him before he got to the plane if, if they had lost that <laughs> I doubt game. The I mean, the, the end it. result, well, no, 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 but, but Sean Payton is lurking and more decisions True. like that. And Sean Payton's going to be doing more than lurking because really of all the teams out there, would the chargers not be one of the ones at the top of his list with Justin Herbert and what they have there, if they can figure out why guys are getting injured all the time and, And I love Brandon Staley as a coach, but some of these decisions, you kind of outthink yourself, you rely too heavily on the analytics, and you put yourself and your team in a bad spot, and then you have to explain it after the fact. And even though it worked, it still is one of those things where if you're a Chargers fan, you're wondering, what the hell were we thinking there? Why did we do that? Keenan Allen was wondering what the hell they were thinking on Twitter, very publicly. And so, it, yeah, they're lucky that they won that game, man. They're really lucky they won that game. And if you're gonna if you're gonna go for it on fourth down, as I take up too much time in this segment, why not run it? You're averaging seven yards a carry. What are you doing? Throwing it was just absolutely the wrong choice in that situation. We saw that Thursday. We saw it in the early game yesterday. We talked about Aaron Jones expressing that concern and question about not running the ball. What happened to running the ball when you need a yard and you have guys who can get a yard if you need a yard? My first one is, and I really don't know how best to phrase this, thou shalt not touch Tommy, maybe, the 11th <laughs> commandment, as, as etched on to the stone tablets by referee Jerome Boger. Now, look, Boger has a reputation for calling it 
very aggressively when it's time for roughing the passer. But what is this? What is this? This is a tackle of a six foot five inch quarterback. And it was a key moment in the game. It extended the drive. Grady Jarrett tackles Tom Brady. Tom Brady tries to kick him in the nuts like he yep. once did with Ed Reed. He got fined for kicking Ed Reed there several years ago. Brady, look at Brady, impetuous little tamper. T- look, kick jamming his leg up into the crotch of Grady Jarrett. He should be fined for that. We'll see if he is. Should. But even before we get to that, Grady Jarrett doing his job, tackling the guy. And there was nothing. That, it was funny because they asked Jerome Bogor after the game, Greg Allman, who was the pool reporter, to explain it. And it was he, he tackled him unnecessarily. Well, what was unnecessary about it? And he, he tried to give him a lifeline and say, hey, is this kind of like what happened with Tua where you get whipsawed down to the ground and you hit your head? No, not necessarily. That's not, no, no. Just, like, I, I don't get it. I don't get it. Unnecessarily threw him to the ground. What's unnecessary about it? He's tackling him. He didn't yes. put his body weight on him. He didn't no. do the turkey joe jones dump him on the top of his head terry bradshaw style from the 70s he just tackled him and arthur smith said it best the coach of the falcons after the game he's not going to get himself fined he just wants to know how to coach his players right what what do you tell them do you tell them when jerome boger is the referee just don't touch the quarterback at all lest you be penalized 15 yards for illegal touching of the quarterback it's it's unacceptable from a, an officiating standpoint when you have teach tape and that's basically what the teach tape is. It's grab and twist, right? There's nothing unnecessary about tackling a quarterback when you're trying to make a play. And the fact that that's what the word he used unnecessarily throwing him to the ground, there is nothing unnecessary about that because if he lets Tom Brady go, then Tom Brady can still complete a pass. So what are we doing here? Is he just supposed to be in the grasp? Are you supposed to give Tom Brady a warm embrace and then say, you know, oh, this is it. This is all we're going to do here. No, it's still football. He's got to be hit. He's got to be tackled to the ground. Otherwise, the play is not over. I don't know what they can do about this, and I'll be very interested to see if there is any reporting or discussion about what the league office thinks of this, but this is not the way to officiate the game. I know we want to keep the star players upright and functional as long as possible. This isn't the way to do it. All right, give me another one. All right, uh, let's go with the is this the end uh, superlative for the Carolina Panthers and head coach Matt Rule because, man, it's just getting worse and getting worse. And at this point, it feels like there's only one way that this is going to end. And frankly, it's kind of felt that way throughout the entire offseason. When you bring in no one else but Ben McAdoo to run your offense, there's a reason for that. When you have to trade for Baker Mayfield in the middle of the offseason as the actual offseason, right? We're not talking about April. We're not even talking about May. It's July when he finally gets there and he has almost only about six weeks to really get ready for the season. It just never felt like it was going to be good. The Panthers are now one and 27 under Matt rule when they allow at least 17 points in a game. That is absurd. And we're three seasons into this just doesn't seem like it's going to work. I I just have to wonder when is David Tepper going to pull the ripcord there? Because at a certain point it behooves both the Panthers and that rule for both parties to just move on. 
Well, and one of the reasons why David Tepper should do it now, and I tweeted this last night, if everything I've come to believe about David Tepper is true, he will do it now. The sooner you put Matt Rule on the market for one of the college jobs that will inevitably be available and already are available, right? the sooner he's making money from someone else and reducing the buyout obligation. If you hold on to Matt Rule through the end of the season or specifically through the end of the college hiring cycle, your buyout is going to be greater next year and beyond for Matt Rule. So you get him out there at a time when there is interest, there will be interest. He's a great college coach. He's just not suited to coach in the NFL, and that's fine. That's fine. It is. He needs to accept it, and he needs to go to a place where he can thrive. He's clearly not thriving at the NFL level. This was another grand experiment that, you know, it's funny. Every time this happens, there are pockets of the media that just – I, I think they're just wired to assume it's going to work because they want access to the guy, frankly. And it's this stand up and applaud, whether it's Urban Meyer, whether it's Matt Rule. We stand up and applaud this move, hedging the bets against the possibility that it works. And how often does it ever really work that a coach comes from college and gets it done at a high level on a sustained basis in the NFL? It just hasn't worked for Matt Rule. And I think that for everyone's sake, and Matt will probably be relieved when it happens. It's just time. They're not going to get better. They may as well go ahead and make the move. And I would do it today if I'm David Tepper. Real quickly from me, I'm going to call this the Hollywood Henderson Award. And it forced me to pull up an old video of Super Bowl 13. And I actually had in my brain that Hollywood Henderson was the one that did this. He was involved in the play. It was actually Mike Hegman that ended up taking It's like Henderson took it away from Terry Bradshaw. But Mike Hegman ended up running it in for a touchdown. So I'm now questioning a lot of things that I remembered from 1978. But I digress. I do remember what happened yesterday when Cameron Dantzler took the ball away from a former teammate in Minnesota and ran it in for the game-clinching touchdown. What a moment that was, too. The Bears seemed to be on their way down the field to force overtime or possibly go for two and win it. And Smith-Marset has the ball ripped away from Cameron Dantzler, who wisely hit the deck. No reason to score a touchdown. No reason to prolong the game. We have the, the, the ability to take a couple of knees and end it. Let's just end it. And he wisely did. But it did give me a flashback to Super Bowl thirteen when they ripped the ball away from Terry Bradshaw. The Cowboys did. I thought it was Hollywood Henderson. Mike Hegman was involved. And I, I remember thinking when it happened, that doesn't seem right. And when you see it happen yesterday, it's like something seems wrong about this. You shouldn't be allowed to do it. But, hey, it's not just the peanut punch. It's not just ripping the ball out and having it bounce around on the ground. If you can literally take it from the guy, that's fair game, Miles. Sure is. Hey, man, that's why they say don't hold the ball like a loaf of bread, right? You got to make sure you get that thing high and tight and that thing's protected. That was a great play and a great way to end the game for the Vikings. I hold the loaf of bread by the bag. Like, I, I've never understood Please. that term. I you know, know. the bag. there's a bag because if you squeeze the loaf of bread, then it gets all mushy and it never goes back into its right. I never understood that. I've been saying it for years. Well, don't no hold one, it like a loaf I don't of bread. It. That's what that's the point. You don't hold it like a loaf of bread. You hold it high but, and tight. You hold it like a loaf of bread. You, yeah, it's loosey goosey. It's it's too it's too able to be smacked down and taken away from you. So go ahead and squeeze it and ruin the bread. That's basically how you should properly hold a football in a way that would otherwise ruin the bread as we continue to ruin the show. Let's take a break. Uh, More PFT Live presented by Google Pixel right after this.
it's still going to be a roller coaster, but you, I, I think it's it's clear to anyone who watches our tape that uh, we've got a really cool nucleus of young 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 men that uh, are only going to get better as he, as time goes, and uh, it's got a chance to be a really explosive group. Um, obviously, it's this is just one game, and we've got to go to Lambeau Field, and I'm sure they're going to be pissed off next week. So it's uh, you know the the challenges for this group does not stop, and um, but but it's it's fun to watch them play, especially when they play so free. The New York Jets finally winning a game without having to storm back in the fourth quarter. They thumped the Miami Dolphins yesterday. The Dolphins came in 3-1, and one, but just the cloud of distraction and awkwardness with the Tua Tonga-Vailoa situation, and they lose Teddy Bridgewater on the first offensive snap. We'll talk about that coming up. But the Jets had lost 12 straight games to AFC East rivals. They snapped that streak. Zach Wilson, 14 for 21, 210 yards. Brees Hall, 97 yards and a touchdown. Five rushing touchdowns for the Jets yesterday. They just overpower the Miami Dolphins, and the Jets need to be taken seriously. The Jets were one of the teams. When we looked at all the great teams in the AFC, I said the Jets, the Texans, and the Jaguars, they're the only three that have no chance, and here are the Jets. Five games in, three and two, and they have a chance. Oh, you gave them that little kiss, and that was all they really needed, The Bengals. The Bengals. Needed... It was the Bengals from last yeah. year. The Bengals had no exactly. chance of making the playoffs. Well, it's funny because, you know, you look at that game, and the, it really turned on the missed 54-yard field goal from Miami in the fourth quarter. I mean, at the beginning of the fourth quarter, it was only 19 uh, to 17 Jets. And then it's like, well, wait a minute. What the hell happens here? And it's just the Jets got rolling and they started getting things done. And then they got a fumble and then they get another score and they get another score. And all of a sudden you get a 40 to 17 result. And so it's great for them. I think that the Jets, like you said, you have to take them seriously. Now, are they actually good? I don't really know the answer to that, but they're at least competitive now. And for a long time, we really couldn't say that about the New York Jets, but I think that they are now at least a part of the living, breathing NFL at this point. And it wasn't a wire-to-wire thumping, and that's the thing. The score suggests one thing, but you're right. I was watching that game among the eight others, and there was a moment where James Kaminsky, our resident over-the-top Jets fan who reacts to everything that happens in the Jets game, so I'm able to look up and see what's happening. When the Dolphins <laughs> miss that field goal and the Jets are up by two points, there's you know, it's there's still plenty of time left, and that's when the Jets found the gas pedal. So they are the ultimate fourth-quarter team because they turned yeah. it on. Three touchdowns in the fourth quarter, and uh, uh, hey, they're, they're doing it in both phases, offense and defense, also special teams, so all three phases. Robert Sala giving the right culture that they've been looking for with the Jets. We're so used to them not being good. Just like with the Bengals last year, we're so used to them being bad. It takes right. time to mentally process that this team is actually pretty good but they are getting it done. And yesterday, it's one of those games where the Dolphins have to be just wondering what's happened to them. They start 3-0. and They're the darlings of the NFL. We see this every year. Team gets off to a big start, and then the losses come. And you've really got to figure it out on the fly. you got to change the tire on a moving car. The next train is coming. They have the Vikings next weekend in Miami, and they just have to figure out what's wrong. But for the Jets, as Salah said, it's not going to be easy going to Lambeau Field. But it's got to feel good to get two in a row, to have that ability in the fourth quarter, to really buckle down and, and just find that higher level of performance. That's all any team can hope for. Well, I've talked about this not long ago. When you know we, we see it 
It's been around for years. Everybody puts up the hand. Fourth quarter, fourth quarter. It's time to really step it up. That's when the Jets are really stepping it up this year. Yeah, it is. I mean, yeah, we put the fours up. I did that when I was in high school. Now, I still see college teams do it too, but it, it is sort of symbolic of when it's winning time. You know, Pete Carroll always says it. Can you win a game in the first quarter? No. The second quarter? No. The third quarter? But can you win a game in the fourth quarter? Yeah. So that's kind of the attitude that the uh, New York Jets have right now, and they're doing it. Um, I mentioned Teddy Bridgewater. He was hit by Sauce Gardner early. It was an intentional grounding play. It was a safety, and Teddy Bridgewater's head hit the ground. He exited the game, and it wasn't clear what was actually happening. After the game, Mike McDaniel said that Teddy Bridgewater passed the concussion test, but it was concluded that he exhibited signs of ataxia. That's the new buzzword. That replaces gross motor instability in the concussion protocol. The league and the union agreed to that on Saturday. It is any type of balance issue. It's... it's issues with speech, motor coordination, anything. It's kind of know it when you see it. It's what we thought with Tua Tonga-Vailoa 15 days ago. You, we saw right. it and we knew it, and the protocol failed in that regard. So somebody saw a taxia, and the explanation was the spotter saw it. I don't know where. I don't know how. I don't know what it was. But as Peter King points out in Football Morning in America, and I think we should have expected this, and I'd rather have an overreaction than an underreaction – but we are yes. in the overreaction phase where we are going to see guys who are removed and not allowed to return when maybe they should have been allowed to return. And maybe that is going to cause some problems for certain teams and certain players in certain moments. I'd still rather see that short term. So everyone understands as we try to find the sweet spot, if we overcorrect a little bit and maybe ease back into the right spot, that's fine. I'd rather do that than, than feel like, the game is being dragged, kicking and screaming to where it needs to be. Absolutely. Look, if there is ever a situation that deserved an overcorrection, it's this one. And we're talking about people's brains, all right? They were talking about not just their livelihood and their ability to make plays on the field. We're talking about people's lives, you know, full stop. So I have no problem with the overcorrection, with protecting guys from themselves in these instances. I got no problem with it. If we have to do this in order to find that sweet spot, and maybe the sweet spot still is the overcorrection, I'm totally all right with it. It, It's just the way it's got to be to make the game as safe as possible. On Saturday, also, the league and the union, as part of the statement announcing the change of the concussion protocol, they tried to harmonize their respective positions on the Tua Tonga-Vailoa situation and the investigation the NFLPA required in its aftermath. And even though the word salad that they somehow concocted creates the impression that they're on the same page, it's clear to me that they're not on the same page. The union believes the protocol was not followed as to Tua. The league believes it was. And the way that they tried to thread the needle was to say all the steps were followed, but the intended result was not reached. And the metaphor I came up with was we put all the ingredients in the cake but we didn't get a cake at the end of the day. We added, mm. we followed the recipe, but hey, the end result is it's not a cake. And yeah, because you're supposed to put eggs in the cake and the eggs actually weren't put in. That's the problem. The steps were not properly followed. You checked the box, but it was just checking the box to move on. And the biggest flaw right. 
And this is in the statement. And the league, and this is what's weird about it, because the league had a video conference to explain its position after the, the statement was released. And there's a very defiant and strident tone from Dr. Alan Sills, the chief medical officer, about the work of the UNCs and everything that they did and how they, well, to a, it really was a back injury. It's this breathless recitation of, well, here's the video of him injuring his back. So it was a back injury. They didn't even examine his back when he said he had a back injury. They admit to that. He said he had a back injury. They took his word for it. They didn't examine his back to confirm it was a back injury. And there was no effort made to come to the conclusion that with the back injury or whatever it was that caused him to wobble and stumble and almost fall, he was still safe to go back in the game. They just focused on checking the boxes necessary to say he's cleared, he's cleared, he's cleared, return to play. That was the problem. And I feel like the union and the league still aren't on the same page as to what happened and as to where this needs to go from here. Maybe they are. Maybe the league just is wired to never admit that they were wrong. And maybe the actions are the admission implicitly. Maybe what happened with Teddy Bridgewater yesterday is the implicit admission that they knew they got it wrong with Tua. So they're willingly getting it wrong with some of these other guys to show to the world that they really do understand the importance of protecting these players from themselves. Well, that, I mean, that's basically what I was just going to say. I mean, if it is what we have to look at, then we have to say that actions sometimes speak louder than the words, right? And if it is so that Teddy Bridgewater was able to clear certain protocols, but was still removed from the game, then that is, I feel like, the overcorrection that shows, yeah, we probably did not apply this properly, at least in the last instance that a Dolphins quarterback had something like this come up. So, like I said, I I don't really have a problem with the overcorrection because of what it is that we're dealing with. And we're talking about concussions and the brain. And there's so much that we even still do not understand about the brain, but we do know that if it gets injured, it can really, really mess you up later in life. So like I said, I'm, I'm okay with the overcorrection. If that's where we have to say the action kind of speaks a little bit louder than the words. Battleground moving forward, the unaffiliated neurotrauma consultants, the union exercised its right to fire the UNC who was involved in Tua's case. The league disagrees with that. The league actually has tried and is currently trying to take away the union's unilateral power to fire the UNC. That's the the push and the pull. That's the rub. They're having the negotiations and everything has to be bargained. But there, there's some acrimony there between the league and the union as it relates to the proper role of the UNC. My understanding is because the, the, the league was asked during this video conference on Saturday, why was the UNC fired? Yes. We'll ask the union. They're the ones who did it. Well, and, and I'll, I'm, I'm never a big fan of that because the league knows it was communicated <laughs> yeah. to them. Ask them. They're the ones who did it. Oh, well, did they not tell you why they did it? Of course they did. And the reason was that the UNC, in the assessment of the union, believed that he worked for the league, not the union. The UNC works for both sides. And mm-hmm. the union thought that he was hostile, unprofessional, indignant toward the union when they tried to talk to him. Like, you know, basically, I'm not going to lower myself to deal with you. I work for the league. I work for Alan Sills. And I, I, I think that's something that they, they need to make sure all the UNCs realize. And Sills was once a UNC. So I get the impression from the video conference, he never came out and said it, but I got the impression that he feels like they're his. The UNCs are 
mm. his crew, his staff, and the unions opposing what it is that these very honorable physicians are trying to do for the good of the game, and they're protecting the players, and you would want your family members to be treated by these individuals. I sure as hell don't want my family member treated by anybody who thought it was okay for Tua to go back in that game. And if the league is going to issue a statement that basically acknowledges that mistake was made, but then circle the wagons and act like everything was fine, that's not the way to do it. And that was the end result for me. By Saturday night, it was weird. 4.30 p.m. or thereabouts, here comes the statement. And I'm like, holy crap, what is this? The steps were followed, but the result was not what was intended by the protocol. Well, if I, if I, if I, didn't, if I, if I didn't know better, I'd say the NFL's acknowledging a mistake was made. And then 5 o'clock Eastern, the conference call starts, and there was never a sense that they believe mistakes were made. I still don't know what they think ultimately went wrong. Because in their mind, everything was done properly. Right. And that, that's what the problem is. You know, I, I would hope that if they did feel like there was a mistake, that because of how important this issue is, just admit you made a mistake. It's okay. I mean, it's not okay, okay. But it, I feel like it's the, the action's not okay. The mistake is not okay. But I feel like it is okay to make a mistake and admit that a mistake was made because that's how the accountability happens. Where actually is the accountability? And I think that's where this statement does not align properly with everything else that we've now heard being said. It, it There should be some level of accountability here if there needs to be that. And by the statement, it seems like there does. Well, and it reflects an acknowledgement that they know what they did wrong, so they know where the line is, so they know how to get it right going forward. Instead of this overcorrection, that may just simply flow from, we don't know what the hell we're doing, so we're just going to rule out everybody now. This is what you want? This is what you want, NFLPA? This is what you want, players? You want all these guys to be ruled out and kept out of games? Fine, that's what we're going to do, because we don't know where the hell the line is. We still can't figure it out. That's not the message that needs to be sent either. Speaking of mistakes, not ready to say it was a mistake to go with Kenny Pickett at quarterback for the Steelers. Not saying Mitch Trubisky or Terry Bradshaw or anybody else would have done any better but it was not the best possible way for Kenny Pickett to begin his NFL career with that trip to Buffalo. We'll talk about that when PFT Live presented by Google Pixel continues right after this. No, no need to really sugarcoat it, man. We got handled today. We got handled by a very good football team. Um, you know, there's nothing mystical about it. You know, they did similar things to Tennessee, and so we know it's capable of happening. I'm just disappointed that we didn't coach well enough or play well enough to prevent it from happening today, and that's just the reality of it. And so we got to absorb the position that we're in, what transpired today. Um, we got to know that there's going to be better days, not to provide or to seek comfort. Um, knowing that there's better days is going to be born out of our commitment to making sure that there are better days, and that's what I talked to the team about. But where we are today, not good. We understand it as professionals. We own it. Uh, it is what it is, man. We congratulate uh, the Buffalo Bills on the quality game that they play. Just unacceptable and uncharacteristic for the Pittsburgh Steelers. They were the last team since the merger to be 14-point underdogs. They lost by 35. The Bills would have covered a 34-and-a-half-point spread yesterday. And even though... There was one of those moments early on where the Bills mishandled the kickoff and they had the ball in their own two. You think, ah, here we go. The Steelers are going to find a way to just make the football gods 
nope. 98-yard <laughs> catch and run for a touchdown by Gabe Davis. And that was it. It was just over at that point. It was done. And I thought the Steelers would at least cover. I didn't think that they would allow themselves to be embarrassed. They were embarrassed. And I don't know where they go from here. They've lost four in a row, Miles. They're one and four. They've got the Bucks, the Dolphins, and the Eagles before their bye week. They're not going to have T.J. Watt until after the bye at the earliest. They can't win without T.J. Watt. They're now 0-8 all-time without him. Yeah, this is a this is a team that has not been this bad in a very long time. And every other time it's felt like the Steelers were going this route. I remember 1989, they lost 51 nothing to your Browns. And then the following week, 41-10, I believe, to the Bengals. And it looked like they were done. Week three, they beat the Vikings, who were a Super Bowl contender that year. I happened to be there, unfortunately, for that game. And they made it to the round of eight that year. The Steelers rebounded from two horrific games to start the season to make it to the round of eight. This is on par with that, and it feels much farther gone than that 0-2 did. This just feels like the bottom has fallen out, and and it's just going to continue. Lose to the Bucks, lose to the Dolphins, lose to the Eagles, 1-7. That's not the Steelers. I'm used to at any point over the 50 years I've been following the NFL. Well, I mean, me either for my 31 years of life. It just doesn't seem like what is going to happen with the Steelers. But this is kind of what we thought was going to happen in 2019 when Ben Roethlisberger went out and then they went and they used a first round pick to trade for Minka Fitzpatrick. And it's like, oh, I guess the Steelers are still competitive in some way. And that's kind of what surprises me that the Steelers don't look competitive. And you listen to Mike Tomlin as we did at the beginning of the segment. And for me, it's like, okay, I I still believe in him as a leader. So there is going to be something, I think, where the Steelers are going to play better and they're going to look better and they're going to be more competitive. Maybe that's just my mindset because I'm so used to that from Mike Tomlin coach teams. But at this point, that's about as ugly as it can get as it did yesterday. I mean, when you're allowing Josh Allen to throw for a career high, 424 yards, he's got four touchdowns. He did throw an interception. That was just kind of like one of those things that happened. And it's really a footnote because Case Keenum comes in with 10, 16 left in the fourth quarter. You're playing out the string in week five against the Pittsburgh Steelers. Just, I, you just don't expect to see that. That 1989 season is memorable because yesterday's loss, 38-3, to was the worst since the 51-0 shutout at home to your Browns, September 10, 1989. Yeah, and I'm looking at their, their – I still don't know how they made it to the playoffs. They were 9-7. They barely got in, and then they beat the Oilers. They were shut out three times that year by the wow. Browns. By the Oilers, 27-0, and by the Bears, 20-0. Shut out three times and still made it to the playoffs and beat the Oilers in a playoff game. Mm. A postseason field goal that Gary Anderson actually made. If he'd only held that for about nine years and waited to make that postseason field goal in an NFC Championship game with the Vikings up seven, that year would have ended a little bit more happily. And then the Vikings would have lost to the Broncos in the Super Bowl. But I digress. The Bills now, <laughs> after they had that that ugly loss against Miami, they come back from 17 down against the Ravens. And they're getting back to what I think they know their identity needs to be. No close games. 
just go blow people out. Build the lead, hold the lead, and not have to worry about what happens with 13 seconds left, Miles. Yeah, probably. And But that's what you're supposed to do. Uh, my old broadcast partner, DeMarco Farr, always said um, that Dick Vermeil used to say this. Good teams keep losing teams losing. Right, that's what the, Pit- the Pittsburgh Steelers are right now. They're a losing team, and when you run into a wagon like the Buffalo Bills have the ability to be, or Stephon Diggs is doing stuff like that and kicking the ball up into the stands in the second quarter and being the best wide receiver in the league, as I believe he is, th- this is the kind of stuff that happens. So Buffalo is at home; they've got momentum going, and we now start to see where they can really go. And now they're going to be going to the scene of the crime with 13 seconds next week. Big, big game on CBS and Jim Nance and Tony Romo, Tracy Wolfson will all be there and we'll all watch and we'll see how much progress they've actually made year to year. Well, what a slate next week too! some great early games, that game, and then Mm -hmm. Cowboys Eagles to wrap up the day. Let's take a break. Sunday statement draft for week five when PFT live presented by Google pixel continues right after this. I want to ask you about your quarterback, Mark. Can you describe what it's like and the chemistry you guys have going between yourselves right now? It's just so good, man. He's so, so, so good. Just managing the game, um, making big-time plays, understanding uh, you know where you're at in the game, which is big for a quarterback, um, and making the right plays at the right time. He's just so, so good. He's so dynamic, able to throw the ball where he needs to throw it. And um, you know, I think we can even help him out even more, uh, which is a good part. There's a lot of good football played, um, but a lot of things we can get better at. Mark Andrews, Ravens side end of last night's victory over the Cincinnati Bengals. Sunday Night Football final is available on demand on Peacock until 7 p.m. Eastern tonight. Great post-game show, wraps up the day, and you can watch that right into pretty much the start of tonight's game between the Chiefs and the Raiders. All right, Sunday Statement Draft Week 5. Miles, you're up first. Let's go with Patricia's revenge because, as we all know, Matt Patricia was the Detroit Lions head coach for a few years there. Very unsuccessful now is apparently calling plays for the New England Patriots and not defensive ones, the offensive ones. And look, Patricia did a hell of a job this week getting Bailey Zappi ready. The third string quarterback comes in and they end up beating the tar out of the Detroit Lions. 29 to zero Dan Campbell called it rock bottom yesterday you better hope it is because uh, man they got to do better than that rock bottom the name of a kiss song from the 70s before they wrote Detroit Rock City which was actually playing in the background during that horrific Thursday night game the only good moment of Colts Broncos was hearing Paul Stanley singing the lyrics to Detroit Rock City, 49ers. And this is not offense, defense, Jimmy Garoppolo, Kyle Shanahan, Jeff Wilson, anybody. This is everybody. They went into Carolina on the road, short week, crossed the country, and kicked the crap out of the Panthers. Now, look, it's the Panthers. But this is what championship teams do. They don't screw around with an inferior opponent. They don't build a lead and then exhale, and the next thing you know – They're scrambling to try to win the game like the Vikings were against the Bears. The Vikings go from up 21-3 to down 22-21. That's not championship football. Championship football is pounce early and put your foot on their throat and not give up until the game is won. And that's exactly what the the 49ers did to the Panthers. And it tells me, as this NFC continues to be wide open, the 49ers are right there. 
And the 49ers, right now, and not, right now doesn't matter. <laughs> when you're looking, I, I'm right. I'm, I'm talking about. Let's say something. Let me let me make my point. Okay, let me. We're running out of time here. The point is this: the 49ers are the one team that I would trust to go into Philadelphia and beat the Eagles in January. Oh. That's my point. The 49ers are built to play on the road in the postseason. They're going to be very dangerous when the postseason comes, and they're going to be there based upon what we saw yesterday. They've got depth. They were playing without their starting two defensive tackles. They lost Nick Bosa to a groin injury. We'll see how long he'll be out. But, yes, they came in there, and they kicked the crap out of the Carolina Panthers exactly as they should have. Uh, My second pick in Sunday's statements, it's a wince, gonna wince. Carson Wentz is just this quarterback right he is good enough to bring you back to the brink of winning and he is bad enough that he will make a play or multiple plays that will lose you the game those last few plays that Washington had at the goal line were not very good should have been intercepted before but the defender didn't know where he was in the back of the end zone and that last passing play Carson Wentz says after the game he thought it was a touchdown well it ends up in the hands of one of uh, Tennessee's linebackers commanders lose why not just play Sam Howell at this point if you're the commanders? It's over. It's know. done. Why not just play Sam Howell and see what you have there? Uh, real quickly, from our Show Me Something draft every Friday, Peter King has uh, made a habit of saying, <laughs> Daniel Jones, show me something. Daniel Jones showed us something, and it wasn't just the blood on his hands that PFT commenter suggested was stigmata. I think that's sacrilegious, but he's the one who said it, not me. Daniel Jones got it done with the bad ankle, um, and just steady hand, 17-3. They came back and won the game and beat the Packers somehow. Quick break. Round three of the Sunday Statement Draft right after this. Speaking of kiss. Oh, look at that. Oh, there we go. Woo! That was rock That was rock bottom for the show. Uh-huh. Stick your tongue out. All right, round three, Sunday Statement Draft for week five. Miles, what do you got? All right, let's go with Taysom Hill. Uh, The Saints needed every bit of whatever they got out of Taysom Hill. Three touchdowns rushing, one passing. That 60-yard touchdown that he had toward the end of the game, that was absolutely huge. I will submit that the Saints have still properly failed to use him the way they could or should. As evidenced by yesterday's game, we should be seeing that more often. What we've seen very often from Justin Jefferson, big numbers. He had 12 catches yesterday, setting the Vikings franchise record through three seasons with with 11 games to go, breaking Randy Moss's record. Not quite the NFL MVP because he's being blanketed and Kirk Cousins isn't willing to throw it to him when he's blanketed, but that's that. By the way, 10-second preview for Monday Night Football. Go. Miles. Uh, Chiefs. Give me the Chiefs tonight. 35 to 17. I think big win for the Chiefs. Big night for Patrick Mahomes. Enjoy it. We'll see you tomorrow morning. Have a great Monday. Dive into the start of summer at Whole Foods Market. Check out their summer splash event with sales on fresh organic produce, organic strawberries, and a fan favorite sale on Ben & Jerry's and Talenti. Explore deals on grill-friendly meats like organic air-chilled chicken breast, beef and chicken kebabs, all with no antibiotics ever from our meat department. Plus, grab easy sides from prepared foods and cool off with refreshing drinks. Kick off your summer and shop in store or online at Whole Foods Market today.